This morning we're taking a break from our study of the book of Romans. Next week we will be back in Romans 9 beginning in verse 14, but this this morning is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of our moms that are here with us this morning. We love you. We honor you as mothers. But uh, in honor of Mother's Day, I thought we'd take a break from Romans 9 and cover something a little less heavy. This isn't necessarily a Mother's Day sermon per se, not that there's anything wrong with a Mother's Day sermon, but I want us to feast on a passage of Scripture that, that I hope and pray and I believe will be encouraging to all those who love God and are seeking to live faithfully for God in the world around us today. So follow along in your Bibles as we read Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult. For the mouths of all liars will be stopped. So the psalm begins with something we didn't even read, the heading of this psalm. Many of the psalms have these headings, and they're, they're a part of inspired scripture. It's not something that the translators added in. They're a part of the original manuscripts. And our, the headings of the psalms often help us to note things like, who wrote the psalm, what the setting it was for the psalm, what the purpose was for the psalm, things of that nature. So the heading of this psalm, Psalm 63, reads, A Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. And so we learned that that this was written by David, and it was written while he was in the wilderness of Judah. And later, according to verse 9, we learned that it was written while... David was being pursued by enemies. So immediately we think of a time in which this occurred in David's life. And and immediately we think of the time in which King Saul was pursuing David in the wilderness. But this is referring to a different time in David's life. Because during this time, David was already king. In verse 11, he refers to himself as the king. And so this is pointing to a time in which David was king and he was in the wilderness and he was fleeing from an enemy. And we know of such a time. Namely, the time in his life when David was fleeing from his son Absalom. 
when his son Absalom was seeking to overthrow his father, David was forced to evacuate from Jerusalem because of his son and because of his son's army and force. And he escaped into the wilderness where he hid for some time. So that's the setting of this psalm. And by the way, David also wrote the third psalm. Probably that was written before Psalm 63 because the, psalm, the, the heading for Psalm 3 reads, A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom, which seems to say that it was right after he fled. Whereas the heading of Psalm 63 says, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah, which indicates that he had been in the wilderness from, for some time at this point, which might explain why in Psalm 3, David is just, is just crying out for God to save him and crush his enemies. While in Psalm 63, we see him being sustained in this dry and weary land by a vision of God's power and glory. Sometimes, sometimes we find ourselves in a spiritual wilderness. Sometimes we find ourselves spiritually in a place that we might call a dry and weary land. And it is in those times sometimes where we just hope for God to save us and crush our enemies like David cries for in Psalm 3. But other times we just need a fresh awareness of God's presence and God's power and God's glory, and God's graciousness, and God's steadfast love. That's where David finds himself at this time. Sometimes we find ourselves in this spiritual wilderness, this dry and weary and parched land, and we just need to know that God's still there. And we just need to know that God still cares. But church, I would submit to you that we, as God's people, are always in that place. That we are always in need of God's power and glory. Whether we realize, whether we are aware of our soul's thirst for God or not, and whether we are aware of our bodies fainting, fainting after the presence of God, our soul still thirsts for him and our body still faints apart from him nonetheless and so this morning some of you may find yourselves in that dry and weary land in that spiritual wilderness that wilderness of the soul and so you feel perhaps very acutely your need to have your soul's thirst quenched by a vision of God's power and glory and goodness. But others of us this morning may not find ourselves in that spiritual wilderness. We may not find ourselves, at least now, in that dry and weary land. And if that's true of us, then we are at a distinct disadvantage because we run the risk of being blinded to our constant and consistent need for our souls to feast and savor on the goodness and glory of God. Maybe it's because 
we have found ourselves satisfied by other things in life. So much so that we're not aware of our soul's need for more. For whatever reason, we need this all the same, whether we're aware of it or not. So may God be so good to us this morning to give us not just an awareness of our constant need for this feasting and savoring on God's goodness, but may he give us confidence that soul-nourishing and life-sustaining is available to us through Christ in us. David makes four declarations here in Psalm 63, and the first of them is found in verse 1 when he declares the condition of his dependence on God. Look at verse 1. See the condition of his dependence on God. He says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh, meaning my body, faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David claims God to be his God. And and there is an endearing relational tone to his words here. O God. You are my God. You're not just the God. You are my God. And because you are my God, I will earnestly seek you. Some translations, like the King James, translate that phrase as early I will seek you. But even when it does so, it's not referring to seeking after God early in the morning. This has nothing to do with the time of day, but it has everything to do with the eagerness and the earnestness of this seeking after God. The word in the Hebrew that is translated either earnestly seeking or early seeking is one word in the Hebrew, shachar. And so it's describing not a time of seeking, but a kind of seeking. He's talking here about seeking after God earnestly. Earnestly. Webster's Dictionary defines earnestly as characterized by or proceeding from an intense and sincere state of mind or conviction. Let me read that again. Characterized by or proceeding from an intense and sincere state of mind or conviction. Earnestly seeking. Some of the synonyms I found for this word include seriously, fervently, actively, diligently, persistently, and so on. Vigorously serving, searching after God. And the searching, the seeking aspect of this Hebrew word is not like David trying to locate God. It's not as if he is, he is trying to find out where God is physically or geographically, but that he is inquiring of God. He is seeking to be in his presence, seeking to learn from him, seeking to be ministered to by him, just seeking to be with him. So if we have an awareness of our need for God's presence and goodness and power and glory in our life, then we will search for him earlier rather than later. There will be a diligence and a fervency and an urgency to our searching. Does this describe your relationship with God? Is this how you approach your God in devotion? 
Is there an urgency? Is there a diligence in your seeking after God? Is there a fervency? Is there a vigorous seeking to be with God? This is what David describes. There was a fervency, an earnestness, a seriousness to his seeking to be in his presence. And now listen in the second half of the verse how he describes the depth of this earnestness with this figurative language that he gives us in the second half of this verse. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. David looks at his physical surroundings as he pens these words in the wilderness. And he sees the dry and weary land around him and he realizes that that's a pretty good metaphor for what's going on in his life right now. Things aren't going well for David. His son has rebelled against him and has led a coup to take over his throne. David has had to flee from Jerusalem, the city of David. It's his own city. He had to flee from Jerusalem and escape out into the wilderness. And by the way, the word wilderness here doesn't mean a lush tropical forest. It means a desert, an arid, dry and weary land as he describes it. So things are not working out for David as he had hoped and as he had dreamed. It seems as though life is falling apart for him. It seems as though life is coming crashing down for David. He's at his lowest point. And it's not just the land. It's his en- the enemies that are pursuing him. They want to destroy him. They want to eliminate him. As David says in Psalm 3, How many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying to my so- of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. So this is not an encouraging time for David. This, this, is, this is not a fun season of his life by any stretch. And he realizes that his his physical condition in the land and in this situation is a good metaphor for his spiritual condition. He thinks, man, I'm physically parched. I, I am desperate for water and there's no water here. My body is so weak, both from a lack of nutrients as well as as running from my enemies who are pursuing after me. My body is so weak that it is on the verge of collapse. And he thinks, that's a pretty good description of me spiritually apart from the Lord's presence. Apart from the Lord, he says, he thinks my My soul is spiritually dehydrated, parched and thirsty, in desperate, desperate need for spiritual hydration from the Lord. And apart from the Lord, he thinks, I'm on the verge of spiritual collapse. Just as my body is about to faint because of physical exhaustion, so my soul is on the verge of collapse and fainting because of spiritual exhaustion. 
apart from God's presence. And that's a, that's a pretty good description of us, church, and our need for the Lord, not just to save us, but furthermore, to continue to sustain us by grace day after day after day. And again, some of you may find yourself this morning in such a wilderness. You may find yourself in a dry and weary land right now. Perhaps life life has not been very kind to you lately. Perhaps you find yourself enduring many trials. And so you feel very acutely this spiritual dehydration apart from the Lord. And so you need no convincing of that. But others of us, perhaps you don't find yourself in a spiritual wilderness this morning. Maybe you've been there before, but you're, just, you're not there right now. In fact, you're in a good, pretty good place right now. There's daily challenges, but for the most part, life right now isn't that difficult. And if that's the case for you this morning, I praise God for that. I really do. But let us not be deceived into thinking that all is well with us. Let us not be so spiritually lethargic that we delude ourselves into thinking that our souls are not likewise in desperate need of spiritual hydration from the Lord. Every single day. Let us not think for a moment that we can live faithfully for Jesus for one minute without spiritually collapsing under the weight of our need for his sustaining grace. We are all of us spiritual beggars in daily need of the very presence of God. And by the way, we're reminded from our study of Romans and Romans 2 that no one seeks God unless what? God first seeks him. Jesus said of himself, the Son of Man comes to seek and to save that which is lost. We're the one lost sheep of whom Jesus leaves the 99, for whom Jesus leaves the 99 to search after and find and bring back. So we seek earnestly for God because he has already sought us. And having sought us, he has saved us by grace through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. And having our eyes opened by him, we behold him in all of his glory and all of his power and all of his grace, which leads us to the next verse of this psalm, where David declares, secondly, the cause of his confidence in God. So first of all, he declares his dependence on God, the condition of his dependence on God, that he needs him. And secondly, in verse 2, he gives us the cause for his confidence in God. Verse 2 says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. David remembers encountering a vision of God's power and glory in the temple. 
the sanctuary, which, which was the place where God revealed himself to his people, where, where God showed up for his people and displayed his glory to his people. And David remembers going to the temple and being awed by a vision. The emphasis here in this verse is on sight. It says that David looked upon God and he beheld, he was beholding with his eyes God's power and glory. So he saw something. David wasn't awed by the temple He wasn't awed by the religious ceremony in the temple. He wasn't awed by the religious artifacts in the temple. He was awed by a spiritual manifestation of God's power and glory. He was awed by the very presence of God in the sanctuary. And this verse says, So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary. So, meaning in like manner. In other words, in my looking upon you in the sanctuary, my God, and seeing your power and your glory, this showed me that what I need in this dry and weary land is not water or food or rest. What I need is you, Lord. That's all I need. I just need my God here in this wilderness. If we are to recognize our great thirst for God and our desperation for Him, then we must likewise receive a vision. A vision of God's power and glory. Where is it that we find such a vision? Where is it that we might behold God's power and glory? It's not in a building. It's not in an organization. It's not even in music that inspires us in worship of God. We find this vision in the gospel. We find this vision in the gospel. Keep your finger here at Psalm 63 and turn over to the New Testament to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. See, the sanctuary is where God shows up for his people, where he reveals his glory to his people. So in that sense, our sanctuary, where God reveals his glory to us, is most predominantly the gospel. It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ where we find the best and the brightest display of God's glory. Listen to Paul as he describes this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, beginning in verse 3. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in the, the unbelievers. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing what? Here it is. To keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. That's what the gospel is. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, look what he did, has shown in our hearts 
to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Oh, that's so good, church. You see, God, by his grace, has given us new life in his son, Jesus Christ, by faith. And he did this by, by shining the light of the gospel into the darkness of our hearts. The darkness of our sinful hearts. So that in the face of Jesus Christ, we might find the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. In the gospel of Jesus Christ, we we receive the best and the brightest vision of God's glory. But not just God's glory, God's power as well. We're reminded from our study of Romans, the first chapter, verse 16. The, as Paul launches in his, into his presentation of the gospel, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is what? It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So church, it is in the gospel that we receive this vision of God's glory and power. And like David, having received this vision of his power and glory, it leads us to conclude that that is all we need. It's all we need. Because if we have that, if we have this awareness of the glory of God and the power of God in the gospel, then our souls will be well-nourished in the wilderness and our spirits will be hydrated with the truth of God's glory in the gospel for us and our bodies likewise will not faint not spiritually at least because the power of the gospel will avail itself to us in our hour of need, so that we will be like those in Isaiah 40 who wait upon the Lord. When Isaiah says this, but they who wait for the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up like wings, like, like wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. So what does that mean for you and I then? If the gospel is the place where you and I receive this vision of God's power and glory that we must savor, especially when we find ourselves in that spiritual wilderness. What does this mean for us? Well, it means that we must endlessly rehearse the truths of the gospel and the implications of the gospel for our lives. We must endlessly, persistently, consistently rehearse the truth of the gospel. This past week, our sons, our twins, were in a play. And all throughout the week, they were rehearsing the play. They were practicing their lines. Why? So that when it came time for performance on Friday night and last night, they would know their lines well. They would know them by heart. They wouldn't even have to think about them. They would be on the tip of their tongues. They would, they would know them well. And in the same sense, we, church, must rehearse the gospel. We must preach the gospel to ourselves and dive deep into the richness of its implications for our lives. If we're to have this vision of God's power and glory and savor that 
in the midst of our spiritual dry and weary lands. So having stated the condition of his utter dependence on God in the spiritual wilderness, and having explained the cause of his confidence that God is his sole hope in the midst of that need, David now declares thirdly his commitment to worship God. Now this is the bulk of this psalm. Verses 3 through 8. But it's, it's, it's just a, it's really an, a natural outworking of his recognition of his spiritual need and his recognition of God being the sole answer to that need. Look at verse 3. He says, because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. Now the last part of verse 3 is really where this response of worship begins. And it seems as though the first part of verse 3 David is giving an additional reason for his worship. That it's not just the display of God's power and glory that leads into worship, but it's also this steadfast love. But the way this is written, the steadfast love of God here is presented not as an additional reason, but as a further description of God's power and glory. In other words, in the display of God's power and glory, In the sanctuary, David finds an expression of God's steadfast love. And and the same is true for us. As we encounter God in the gospel, and we're beholding his power and his glory in the gospel, this is a tremendously rich display of God's love for us. Remember Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It is a display, the gospel is, of God's power and God's glory, but it's also a display of his steadfast love. The Hebrew word here for steadfast love is chesed. It looks like chesed because it starts with an H, but in the Hebrew it's this guttural sound. Like you're clearing your throat. It's the chesed love of God. It's also translated as loving kindness. God's chesed love is explained by Bible scholars as his covenant love. Or his loyal love. It is the love of God for his own. It is his unstoppable, unrelenting, loyal, loving kindness for his own children. And it is this chesed love that is so beautifully displayed at the cross. That God so, is so unrelenting in his love for his chosen people that he offers up his son to live for us and die for us. To purchase us back to himself. And David says, your chesed love is better than life. It's a great, great line. Your steadfast love is better than life. Life apart from God's loyal, unrelenting covenant love is less than life. Life apart from the gospel's power to save and its unveiling of the glory of God and the power of God is less than life. God's love for you displayed in the gospel is better than life, David says. 
So in response to the vision of God's power and glory and its, and its manifestation of God's steadfast love, David now erupts in worship. And we see one verse, one phrase after the other in him expressing his commitment to worship God. At the end of verse 3, he says, my lips will praise you. And the primary meaning there is not, it's not just his lips praising God and, and singing songs of praise to him, though it would include that. But the emphasis here is talking about the praise of God always being on his lips. To the one who rehearses the gospel regularly and is savoring the the power of God and the glory of God in the gospel, their lips will not cease from praising God. David continues in verse 4. He says, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. The word bless here carries the connotation of celebration and adoration. He's celebrating God. God, I will celebrate you and I will adore you as long as I live, as long as I have breath. He says, in your name I will lift up my hands. In celebration of you, in adoration of you, I will lift up my hands. And remember, these words here are not commands to worship as much as they are simply a response of worship. As David recognizes that in the middle of this spiritual wilderness that God is with him. He's reminded of God's power and God's glory revealed to him. He's reminded of God's chesed love for his own. And these are his responses. I will bless you all the days of my life. In your name, I will lift up my hands. Verse 5, my soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. In other words, as as my body is most satisfied with fat and rich foods, my soul, oh God, is most satisfied with you. Nothing else. Only you. Can you say that? Are you most satisfied with God? Is he your greatest treasure? Is he your greatest delight? This afternoon, we're going to be celebrating Mother's Day at our house, celebrating um, my wife, Susan, mother to our boys, my mom, Dixie, is on the front row with with us this morning. And we're going to be celebrating Mother's Day with a lunch of grilled steak. I went out this week, and I bought some fillets and some New York strips, and we're talking nice, thick ones. They're marinating. I know, I know I'm doing it to you, aren't I? They're marinating right now as we speak. I'm going to grill those puppies up, and we're going to feast on those steaks. And afterwards, we're going to be satisfied. We're going to be full. We're going we're to be content. Church, this is our experience when we encounter the power of God, the glory of God, the steadfast love God in the gospel. We are spiritually full. Our souls are satisfied in him. He goes on 
In verse 5, he says, And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. This, this feasting on God's goodness in the gospel leads to joy in our hearts that is then further expressed in praise. If you're not experiencing a measure of joy in your heart, in your life, perhaps you need to encounter God in the gospel This soul satisfaction, this joyful praise will happen for David when he says in verse 6, when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. David turns his sleepless nights in the wilderness into times of remembrance and meditation on God's goodness. This is referring not to Eastern meditation, which is an emptying of one's mind, but to biblical meditation, which is a focusing of one's mind on God and on his word. Has your spiritual wilderness experience ever caused sleepless nights for you? Have those times in a dry and weary land spiritually ever caused you to just lie awake at night As you are doing so, fretting and worrying over the cares of this world that are weighing you down, why not focus your heart and mind on the goodness and graciousness and power and glory and steadfast love of God in the gospel? This is what David did. And as he did, he remembered that God had always been there for him, that God had always been his source of help and protection. Verse 7, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. As you and I rehearse the truth and the implications of the gospel for us, we see that God indeed has been our great help. He has helped us out of the hopeless condition of our lostness by sending his son Jesus Christ to live and die for us. And he has been our great protector as he hides us under the shadow of his proverbial wings as he clothes us in the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And the recollection through the gospel of him being our help and our protection unto salvation will further give us greater confidence that he will likewise be our helper and our protector in sustaining us by grace day after day after day, especially when we find ourselves in the dry and weary land. Then in verse 8, David gives a conclusion, a general conclusion to this response of worship. He says, my soul clings to you. My right hand upholds you. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? David's soul clinging to God. That word clinging means to adhere to, to cleave unto, to hold fast to. David's soul clings to God and God's right hand upholds him. 
Neither part of that picture discernible from the other. It's impossible to tell where David's soul clinging to God ends and where God's upholding of David begins. When we encounter God's glory and covenant love in the gospel, our soul will instinctively cling to him, will adhere to him, will hold fast to him as he upholds us with his righteous right hand. And then fourthly and finally, David declares his confidence in God's help in these final three verses of the psalm. Beginning in verse 9, he says, But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of all liars will be stopped. Church, when we regularly, when we persistently, consistently stay in the gospel, rehearse the gospel, preach the gospel to ourselves, both its truths and its implications for our lives, we are reminded that our great enemy has already been defeated. Jesus defeated sin and death and Satan when he died and rose again. And so when we find ourselves in that spiritual wilderness, we're reminded that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. No spiritual attack will come upon you that God will not be able to put down because he's already put down your greatest enemy. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So as a result for David, even while he's in this dry and weary land, pursued by enemies that are intent on destroying him, he rejoices in God. He rejoices in God in the midst of the dry and weary land. Church, if we are to apply the truth of this psalm to our lives today, we must learn how to savor a vision of the glory of God in the gospel and be reminded of his goodness, be reminded of his power to save and his power to sustain. Be reminded of his grace, be reminded of his glory, the glory of God displayed in the gospel. And this happens when we take our eyes off of the dry and weary land. We take our eyes off of the spiritual wilderness that we find ourselves in and we put them on God in the gospel. And we behold his power and his glory and his steadfast love. Let's pray together.